Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 32, The West Saxons' Dark Eighth Century. Before we start, as I'm sure you're all aware, there's a history podcast out there for practically anything you could want. It can all be a bit overwhelming, so I like to highlight podcasts that might be of interest to you all. One such podcast is The History of the Germans, hosted by Dirk Hoffman Becking. History of the Germans is a fascinating look at the history of the German kingdom, from its emergence from the rubble of the Carolingian Empire in 919 to 1990. Right now, Dirk is looking at the dramatic reign of Frederick II. Dirk is a great storyteller, with a real passion for this subject, and it makes for compelling listening, since it's clearly such a labour of love. I was never too knowledgeable about German history before the Reformation, so I've already learned a lot from this show and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. If you enjoy this show, I'm sure you will also enjoy the history of the Germans, available now on whatever podcast platform you use. Now, on with the show. Following Einar's abdication in 726, the rest of the 8th century was a time of uncertainty for Wessex. It's a period that is not well served by the primary evidence, and we don't really get detailed accounts of the kingdom's history again until the rise of Edgbert in 802. It's a period in which Wessex was often threatened by the ascendant power of Mercia to the north and by internal instability as new dynasties vied for the throne. I've called it the Dark Eighth Century, and that is a deliberate play on the dual meaning of the word dark. Traditional historiography has tended to see this period as one of West Saxon decline, sandwiched between the revolutionary reigns of Ina and Edgbert. In that sense, it could be seen as a dark age for Wessex, although as I will argue in this episode, that traditional narrative is overly simplistic and underplays the achievements of the kings who ruled in these decades. The other meaning of dark is of course referring to something mysterious, and in that certainly describes these decades quite well. The kings and their undertakings are mysterious to us, and that makes these decades into a puzzle that must be solved. I will attempt to do so here. If you'll recall, Ina abdicated in 726 to go on pilgrimage to Rome. 
Bede tells us that he left Wessex in the hands of younger men. Exactly who these men were is a matter of uncertainty, and it's tempting to see in this event a rebellion by the West Saxon nobility against Ina's centralising tendencies. Ina's abdication and the resulting instability put the West Saxons in a vulnerable position. No sooner had they deposed Ina than they came under the influence of the ascendant Mercians. If you'll recall back to the episodes on Athelbald and Offa, those kings' dramatic strengthening of the Mercian kingdom and its dominion over its neighbours coincided with the fall of Ina. Sensing an opportunity to quell a people who had been a thorn in their side for nearly a century, they rushed to apply the power of wealth from their wicks to manipulate the West Saxon kingdom into submission. This policy was successful for the most of the late 8th century, but it seems to have chafed the West Saxon nobility, who disliked the elevation of Mercian puppets, and in response launched several rebellions during this period. It would be wrong, though, to say that Wessex in this period was just a Mercian puppet. Even kings who were effectively elevated by the Mercians to support their own ends were able to stand up to the Mercians at various points suggesting that they were not simply vassals, but had a more complicated relationship with their neighbours to the north. Certainly, though, this was a period of intense West Saxon instability, and this began almost immediately upon Ina's abdication. A man named Athelherd rose to claim the throne and face the opposition of an Oswald, who is identified in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as a descendant of Caolin, a comment which suggests that Athelherd may not have been a descendant of Caolin, thus representing the rise of a new dynasty. The dispute between Athelherd and Oswald was apparently settled partly by the intervention of Athelbald of Mercia, who subsequently functioned as the overlord of Athelherd, as well as the overlord of his brother and heir, Cuthred. We see, for example, that when granting land in territory close to the Mercian border, Cuthred, and presumably also Athelherd, when he was king, was required to first get Athelbald's consent, indicating that the West Saxon kings were subordinate to the Mercians. In return for his support against Oswald, Athelherd may have also allowed Athelbald to annex certain parts of northern Wessex, which the Mercians had long coveted. For example, in 733, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that Athelbald took the royal manor of Somerton from Wessex, seemingly without any opposition. The Chronicle only says that Athelbald captured Somerton, but says nothing about Athelherd fighting to keep it. Cuthred's relationship with Athelbald was seemingly more complicated. Yes, he was required to get the Mercians' permission to grant away land at Glastonbury, but the record of his reign in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle also records several successful battles against Athelbald, suggesting that Cuthred did attempt to break loose of Athelbald's overlordship, seemingly with some success. This may be linked, for example, to the marked uptick in rebellions faced by Cuthred, with two being recorded in the Chronicle, one in 748, in which Cuthred's own son, Kinrich, was killed, and another in 750, when an Aelderman, Athelhun, led a rebellion against him. It's speculative, but possibly these rebellions reflect attempts by Athelbald to replace Cuthred through supporting claimants to the throne. The little evidence we have for his reign, though, makes it hard to be certain about this. Cuthred did also revive the West Saxon pastime of encroaching on the Welsh, probably meaning the Cornish, since on several occasions, 
The Chronicle tells us that he led raids into Welsh territory, although the locations of these raids are never specified. This really reflects the summation of everything we know about Athelhaird and Cuthred. Like I said, their reigns really are not that well recorded in any of the surviving documents, and as puzzling as their relationship with Athelbald seems to have been, we really can't say much more about it. Cuthred in particular seems to have been somewhat subordinate to Athelbald, even while he was fighting rebellions against him, but he nevertheless was able to exert his own independence enough to wage war against the Mercian, as well as launching raids into Cornish territory. Unless we are able to find more evidence about Cuthred, more charters or whatever, it's always going to be very difficult to figure out what was going on in Wessex at this time. All we can do is point out that Athelhaird and Cuthred, while certainly owing their power somewhat to Athelbald, were not simply puppets or vassals. Cuthred died in 756, and was succeeded by a distant relative named Siobert. This Siobert is another of these kings we've seen a few times now, who reigned for only a very short period of time before being deposed for immoral or unjust acts. In this case, Siobert reigned for less than a year before being deposed in 757, through the will of the Witan, the council of advisors that was at the centre of Anglo-Saxon royal government. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past.
Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I want to take this time to thank all of you who are listening to this. It really means so much to have anyone listening to this. In particular, I would like to thank our patrons over at Patreon. So Janet Kearns, Jennifer Ross, Ramon Rodriguez, Patricia Scott, Wilfrith, Bruce Goodmanson, Adam Getzendana, George, Brandon Johnson, Flynn Hartwick, Holly Sinclair, Dante, Cathan, Bluebell, Grace M. Teresa, Che Christian Padron, Claire Hamilton Russell, Cameron Bradley, Deacon Diedrich, Evan Shriver, and Eric Eller. Thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to me. And to anyone else who's listening, if you enjoy this, if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then any kind of help or support you can give would be greatly appreciated. Even if it's just a like or a comment or a review or a subscription on whatever platform you're listening to this on, if you have it in your ability to donate over on Patreon, that is also greatly appreciated. If you do, you'll get access to lots of bonus stuff like transcripts, bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and more stuff to come in the future. Absolutely anything from anybody helps, and it's all deeply appreciated. Thank you. Siobert was succeeded by a man named Kinewolf, possibly again with the support of Athelbald, since Kinewolf appears as a witness in one of Athelbald's charters issued shortly after he became king. However, Athelbald was murdered in 757, and this threw Mercia into a period of instability, and allowed Kinewolf to assert his independence by invading and retaking parts of Berkshire that Athelbald had annexed during Athelhaird's reign. These same parts were later recaptured from Wessex by King Offa, but it seems that despite this, Kinewolf was never subject to Offa's overlordship. On the contrary, during his reign, Kinewolf seems to have engaged in a policy of strengthening Wessex militarily and economically against Mercia. He did this particularly by minting sheaters, seemingly modelled on the revised coins issued at the same time by Eardbert of Northumbria, possibly indicating economic cooperation between the two in an attempt to isolate Offa's Mercia. Kinewulf's ascension to power in 757 is recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle by one of the more puzzling entries in the entire text. The entry which stylistically seems to have been written by someone other than the chroniclers, is often extracted and used by those teaching Old English, both because it is a neat little self-contained narrative, but also because it really helps students learn about the different Old English third-person pronouns. You'll sometimes find it called just Kinawulf and Kinahead, and I'll quote it here in full since it covers both the beginning and the end of Kinawulf's reign. Quote, This year... Kinewulf, with the consent of the West Saxon Council, deprived Siobert, his relative, for unrighteous deeds of his kingdom, except Hampshire, which he retained until he slew the elderman who remained the longest with him. Then Kinewulf drove him into the Weald, where he remained until a herdsman stabbed him by the stream at Privet, and revenged the elderman Cumbra. The same Kinewulf fought many hard battles with the Britons, and after ruling for 16 years, he wanted to drive out a prince called Kinehaird, who was the brother of Siobert. And then he, Kinehaird, 
having learned that the king, with a small troop, was in the company of a lady at Merton. He rode after him there and surrounded the chamber before the attendants and the king became aware of him. When the king perceived this, he went out of doors and defended himself in no disgraceful way, till, having looked on the prince, he rushed out upon him and wounded him severely. Then they were all fighting against the king until they had killed him, and then from the woman's cries the king's warriors became aware of the disturbance, and whosoever became ready fastest ran out to where the king lay slain. The prince immediately offered them life and riches, which none of them would accept, but continued fighting together against him, till they all lay dead except one British hostage, and he was severely wounded. When in the morning the king's thanes that were left behind heard that the king was dead, they rode there, Osrich, the elderman, and Weferth, his thane, and the men that he had left behind previously. And they met the prince at the fort where the king lay dead. The gates, however, were locked against them, which they attempted to force, but he, Kinahed, promised them their own choice of money and land if they would grant him the kingdom, reminding them that their relatives were already with him who would never desert him, to which they answered that no relative could be dearer to them than their lord, and that they would never follow his murderer. Then they offered that their relatives may have safe passage. They replied that the same request was made of their comrades that were formerly with the king. Then they said this, that they would not pay attention to that any more than their companions who were killed with the king. Then they were fighting around the gates until they fled inside, and they killed the prince and the men who were with him, all except for one who was the alderman's godson and saved his life, and he was often wounded. End quote. In total, Kinawulf reigned for 31 years, his death occurring in 786. With his removal, Offa sensed an opportunity and moved in to assert his influence over Wessex by supporting the rise of a West Saxon noble named Beortrich. This Beortrich was soon married to one of Offa's daughters, and with him chaired the Synod at Chelsea, which greeted the papal legates in 787. See the Offa episode for more information on that. Under Beortrich, Wessex seems to have effectively become part of the Mercian Empire. Lands along the border with Wessex were now being directly administered by Offa, as his charters indicate, and Offa's coinage seems to have flooded West Saxon markets, suggesting economic domination also. Offa also used this power to drive potential rivals into exile, most importantly for Wessex. He used Beortrich to exile Edgbert, the nephew of King Ina who fled to the court of the Emperor Charlemagne, along with other English exiles, fleeing Offa's violent treatment of his opponents. After Offa's death in 796, Beortrich attempted to regain some independence, while not offending his brother-in-law Edgefrith. The only coins minted by Beortrich in his own name were minted in the years between 796 and 802. Following Edgefrith's death in 797, Beortrich seems to have continued his alliance with Coenwulf, Certainly there are no records of conflict between Wessex and Mercia for the remainder of Beortrich's reign. After Beortrich died in 802, later tradition said as a result of accidental poisoning by his wife, Edgbert returned from exile and retook the throne. As we discussed in the Mercian series, the return of Edgbert marks the end of the Mercian supremacy and the establishment of West Saxon domination south of the Humber. We'll talk more about this in the next episode. For now, how do we interpret the West Saxons' late 8th century? I think we need to remember 
that our sources present a very particular view of events. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, our main written source, was composed during the reign of Alfred the Great, grandson of Edgbert. From his perspective, the period between 726 and 802 was a time when his dynasty lost control of Wessex, and consequently, he may have been inclined to present it as a time of crisis for the West Saxons, particularly since he was attempting to make the case for his new kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons and his particular right to rule such an expansive and new entity. In reality, the kings of these few decades don't seem to have been particularly incompetent. While many of them came under the influence of Mercia, with the exception of Athelherd and Beortrich, none of them seem to have meekly accepted Mercian overlordship. Instead, they operated within the political climate they were given, in the best way that they could. They did all the things that kings were expected to do in this period, such as issuing charters and, where possible, minting coins. Most tellingly, though, it is during this period that the West Saxons really solidified their grip on the British and Jutish areas that Cadwalla had conquered. We see this especially in the place names, as British names in particular were largely replaced with Old English ones in Somerset and Dorset by the end of the 8th century. How personally responsible the kings were for this is of course debatable, but it suggests that during this period, Wessex was not simply a Mercian vassal, but still retained a strength of its own, which allowed it to assert its own identity. So in summary, the kings of this period are certainly poorly served by the primary evidence, but we should resist a temptation to see in this a truly impartial view of history. It's the norm for this period for primary sources to be few and far between, and especially with the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we must be wary of later political biases colouring our reading. The kings of the late 8th century may not be Wessex's most important or successful, but in the circumstances in which they found themselves, they certainly held their own admirably. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you will join us again for the next episode. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.